the day that changed the world, and it can change you too. Happy Easter, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the day that changed the world. How many of you would say it's changed your life too? Anybody out there? You say, yep, that's changed my life, made my life completely different. Praise God. It is such an incredible thing. And we get to talk about it today and hopefully bring a a little bit of uh, maybe fresh thoughts and insight, a fresh perspective into the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, I just want to say thanks for being here. Uh, Those of you that are in the room, those of you that are with us online, welcome. We're glad you're here, whether you've been with us for 30 years or three months or this is your first time, we are so glad that you are here with us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to worship God some more today. We've been worshiping him through our our singing to him. We worship God through our giving. We worship God through our study of his word, which we're going to do in a minute. Uh, But before we do that, we're just going to take a moment and ask God to give us wisdom to help us to, to see from his word what he wants us to learn today, how he wants us to grow. So I'm going to ask you if you would just bow your head with me and let's pray, God, We know that you are here with us and that you are ready to teach us and give us insight and help us to grow. And we want to be open to that, Lord. We want to be receptive to whatever you want to share with us. And maybe it's something that I'm going to say. Maybe it's something completely different that you are just going to help us to understand through your word today. But God, I pray that you would help us to have wisdom and have insight. Help us to know how what you did for us on that cross and coming back to life some 2,000 years ago from our perspective, how that changes how we live every single day, God. Please help us to see those areas in our life that we need to surrender over to you. Please help us to see the things that we need to work on and, and do better at, and then give us, give us the boldness and the energy and the courage. And Lord, we ask you to transform our lives and help us to live the way you want us to live. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Good Friday, we started by remembering what Matthew tells us about the death of Jesus on the cross. And then we went to Paul's letter to the Romans to see how does Paul interpret that? What does he do with that? And how do we apply that to our lives? We're going to do the exact same thing today with the resurrection. So we're just going to keep with that theme. That means we're going to start in Matthew, and then we're going to jump over to Romans. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Matthew. We'll be there for a little bit. And then we're going to move over to Romans. As we read in Matthew chapter 28, What I want you to do is try to put yourself in the place of the two Marys and just see if you can visualize what they are seeing. See if you can kind of picture what they see as they experience this for the very first time. Matthew tells us that early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear. When they saw him, they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was laying. And now go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what we have told you. Then the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. But get this, as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go 
Tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. You know what I absolutely love about this is that the the women already had the message. They already had what they needed. They were already told by the angels, go tell this to the disciples. And yet still on the way, Jesus says, no, I got to go see them personally. I want to, I want to personally appear to them so that, and give them the same information that they already had. Jesus wanted to connect with these two women. We just sang moments ago these lyrics to God, the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away as perfect love. God's perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated forever. He is glorified forever. He is lifted high forever. He is risen. He is alive. There's a reason this is one of the biggest days of the year for us. A lot of churches call it their Super Bowl, Easter. It's a big deal. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the most important kind of keystones to our, to our whole faith. Our faith hinges on this truth that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but then came back to life. Our God is not dead. He is alive. Our Messiah gave his life as a sacrifice for us, yes, but then he rose from the dead, proving that he has power over death, which means he has power over sin, which leads to death. On Good Friday, we explored the significance of the cross from Paul's perspective. And today we're going to explore the significance of the resurrection from Paul's perspective in Romans. In Romans chapter 6 on Friday and today Romans 7 and 8. And if you were with us on Friday, you'll notice a lot of overlap here. Paul's going to repeat himself. You'll see some of the same themes in Romans 7 that we saw in Romans 6. We're going to start in verse 21 of Romans 7 if you've got it there in your Bibles. Paul says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. You'll remember that from Good Friday if you saw that message. I love God's law with all my heart, he says. Hold on to that. Remember that phrase. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life? that is dominated by sin and death. That statement in verse 22, I want you to pay attention to. He says, I love God's law with all my heart. I love God's law with all my heart. Sincerely, with everything I have, I love God's law. That's good, right? But then he says a little bit later, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So Paul loves God's law with all his heart, but his life is dominated by sin and death. How can this be? How can these two things be true? See, a lot of times we think that the way to be right with God, the way to be okay with God is through sincerity. A lot of people think this sin say this, that if you're just sincere enough, that's what it takes to be right with God. And, and maybe that means you, you go to church every now and then. Maybe that means you read the Bible occasionally. And if you're sincere, it's got to count for something. Maybe you do enough good to outweigh your bad. You know, on Easter Sunday, you dress up a little bit. Well done. I see some great outfits out there. I'm sure you like the sport coat. A lot of people didn't recognize me today. You know, the great thing about wearing a sport coat, I used to be required to wear, for years, I, a sport coat was mandatory. Okay, so I'm just getting over that still. Um, there's some baggage there. But the thing I love about wearing a sport coat, you only have to iron this part. That's it. It's perfect. But if you do all these things with great sincerity, shouldn't that count for something? And Paul is saying here, man, I love God's law with all my heart. I'm so sincere. And yet, and yet, my life is still dominated by sin and death. How can this be? 
It's not enough to be sincere. It's not enough to try really hard. It's not enough to love the things God loves. Our life is still dominated by sin and death. And what is it that makes him so miserable? What is it that makes him feel so bad? Notice that he says, even though I want to do what is right, I do what is wrong. I want to do what is right. I've got good desires. You'll remember this from Good Friday, but I keep doing what's wrong. I keep slipping up. Can any of you relate to that? (laughs) I know the right things to do. I know the things I shouldn't be doing, but I keep going back to them. You have something in common with the Apostle Paul. Apostles were not perfect people. Apostle doesn't mean super saint. We often think that it does. Apostle means messenger. And Paul is a messenger, not of what's good about him, but what's good about Jesus. And so here he's being very open and vulnerable with us and saying, I want to do what's right, but I do what's wrong. And it's making me absolutely miserable. Now, I want to, I want to point out here that this is a very self-aware statement for Paul to make, right? And here's what it probably took Paul a little while to arrive there because just knowing what I know about human nature and what I know about myself, our tendency when we feel miserable is to blame other people, right? When we feel miserable, our first inclination is who did this to me, you know, and it could be about something big. It could be about something little. When, when, when things aren't going well for us, uh, when the kids wake you up really early in the morning, it's like, oh, those rotten kids, you know? It's always, who did this to me? Someone else did this to me. It's other people's fault. And, and our, the last place we look is inside of ourselves. Now, let's be honest. The reality is that there are people that do horrible things that have consequences for other people. There are people that hurt other people. There are people that abuse other people. There are people that slander other people. There there are all sorts of people that hurt other people. I'm I'm not denying that. But we're talking about something deeper here. We're talking about the miserableness that comes from the recognition that we actually have lives that are dominated by sin and death. And Paul is telling us here that I'm miserable not because of what other people have done to me. I'm miserable because of my own sin, because I don't do the things that I should do, and I do the things I know I shouldn't do, not because of what other people did to me. Hey, Paul had a lot of stuff done to him. Paul was beaten. Paul was thrown in jail and prison. Paul was mistreated horribly by a lot of different people. Paul had people even in the church who were working against him. He had people who called themselves Christians who made false accusations against him, and Paul could have easily said, man, I am miserable because of all the stuff these other people have done to me. But when it came right down to it, he said, no, my, my real miserableness, as, as unfortunate and, and uncomfortable and horrible as some of those things I went through in my life, my real miserableness at a deep level, it's because of my own sin. It's a very deep self-aware statement and is not at all meant to, to lighten or lessen the severity of what sometimes what other people do to us and how other people can hurt you. It's not to to lessen that in any way. But there's another layer underneath that, which is our own sin. I'll just give you a quick example of it. So I'll keep it generic. Someone does something to hurt you or does something against you or offends you in some way. And there's a period of time where you are very naturally going to be hurt by that. And maybe it doesn't get resolved. And at a certain point, you're going to have to decide, am I going to keep holding on to bitterness about this? Or am I going to say that's covered by the blood of Jesus, and that's forgiven. And so I am not going to live as a victim of that. I know that's very hard to do. And I know that there's a whole spectrum of of, of different situations that make that very, very hard to do. 
But isn't it true that at a certain point, the thing that keeps making us miserable isn't what the person did to us, but the fact that we're still living as a victim in it? Isn't, isn't the thing that makes us miserable the fact that we're holding on to bitterness? You know, it's been said many times that, that to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness is, is like drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. At a certain point, isn't it our own sin and pride and envy and greed and selfishness that leads to us being miserable? I'm talking at a deep, deep level here. And Paul got this. Paul recognized that, man, I'm miserable because my life is dominated by sin. I was joking around with Bill and Jen Pescorse on Friday saying, isn't it true that at a certain point you just, you don't sin anymore? And, and Jen goes, oh no, you just become more aware of it. Isn't that true? Is it still true? You become more aware of it as you, as you mature and, and, and you, you realize more and more just the depths of your own sin and and sometimes the battleground of sin moves from the, the actions in your hands to the mouth to the head, but it's still there. And Paul says, man, my life is dominated by sin. What I want us to recognize from this is that the problem is not with others, but with me. That's not to say there aren't problems that others have or that they don't cause problems for us. They do. But the biggest problem deep down inside of us, we have to admit, is with myself and my own sin that I hold on to, my pride, my selfishness, my anger, my bitterness, greed, envy. That's where the real problem lies. And so Paul says, what a miserable person I am. Not because of what others have done to me, but because of my own sin. And you know, the lower view you have of sin, the higher view you'll have of God. The lower view you have of your own sin, the higher view you will have of his salvation. So we have this problem, this terrible problem. And the problem is not with others. The problem is ultimately with me. What's the solution? What is Paul's solution for us? In verse 25 of Romans 7, he says, Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God the answer is in Jesus. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. This is like Paul's 10th time saying that in the last three, two, two chapters here. But then he says, So now in chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation anymore for that sin. And because you belong to him, he says, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So, this is so important, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Let me just ask you, you can shout it at, at me. What's the answer to our problem? Good answer. Way to go. You've been paying attention a couple times now in the last month. I've asked for that answer and you've given it. What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the answer, the ultimate answer to our problem. Thank God the answer is not in ourselves. and something that we have to do to accomplish this because we can't do it. It's not about some spiritual quest. It's not about some religious rituals. It's not about doing enough good. It's not about being really sincere. The answer is only in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so the question then is, do you, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Verse 3 of chapter 8 says that Jesus came in a human body, just like we have, so that he could be a sacrifice for our sin. He did what we could not and what the old law could not do. And so we're going to say that the solution is not with me, but with Jesus. The problem is not with others, 
but with me. That's the first thing we have to realize. The second thing we have to realize is the solution is not with me, but with Jesus. So many people look to other things to solve their miserable problem. So many people look to drugs, look to all sorts of substances, look to different activities. Maybe religion will do it. Maybe if I have enough money, then I finally won't be miserable anymore. But if those things have the answer, how come is it that so many people, when they pursue those things and they get those things, they turn around and they say, yeah, it didn't actually make me happy for very long. I'm in the same place I was six months ago or a year ago, maybe even worse. Because pursuing all of those things doesn't actually solve the miserable problem. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have Jesus, you're still going to have a life that's dominated by sin. You can have whatever substance you want, any amount of it that you want, but if you don't have Jesus in your life at the end of the day, you're still going to feel miserable. And the solution isn't in anything that we can do. The solution has to be in Jesus. We say one of our distinctives here is that Jesus is the difference. One of our distinctive values Jesus is the difference. And what we mean by that is it's not just on Sunday. It's not just, yeah, you show up to, to church on Sunday and, and you check that box. And then you sort of live your life the rest of the week. It's like, no, Jesus is the difference in, in every part of our life. But how does that work? How does he do that? How is Jesus the solution? We're going to keep reading in verse 7 of chapter 8. Paul says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. He's talking to people who have believed in Jesus. He says, you are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Not everyone does. He says, remember, those that who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. But he says, Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God through Jesus. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The spirit who raised Jesus from the, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. I just want to do a quick review of what's in that passage because there's a lot packed in there. Paul, Paul talks about the, the misery. He, he again explains the misery. We all have a sinful nature. He really wants to get that point across. We all have a sinful nature. The sinful nature never wants to please God, can't please God. We learned on Good Friday that Jesus broke the power of that sinful nature over us. It's like that part died on the cross. It was united in his crucifixion, united in his death. And so the, the controller, the sin controller had the batteries taken out of it. And it no longer has the power over us, the control over us that it did before. So for those who believe in Jesus, he's broken that power. And then Paul says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in you. That is such a fascinating statement to me. Think about that for a minute. That what we learn from this is that the Holy Spirit was the one that actually raised Jesus from the dead. And also Paul in this passage, he talks about it interchangeably, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He's giving us a clue to the Trinity there, the fact that this is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one person. They can be, these terms are used interchangeably for Paul. But it was the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul wants the believers to know. He would want us to know that that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now living in those who have trusted in Jesus. That has some pretty interesting implications. You are 
taking the Spirit of God with you wherever you go. The Spirit of God was with you on the way to church today when you were so frustrated at being late. The Spirit of God was with you this week when you had that conversation with your family member that didn't go so well. The Spirit of God was with you at work. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are carrying God's Spirit with you wherever you go. Should that change the way we live? Paul says the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. Think about the power that that requires. God puts that in us. We cannot take that lightly. We cannot treat that flippantly. We have the spirit of God living inside of us. So that means that there is a direct connection. This is what Paul is saying here. There's a direct link between you and the resurrection of Jesus. On Friday, we talked about the connection that you have between you and the crucifixion. There's a direct connection that happens when you trust in Jesus. And there's a part of you that dies via the cross, the sin control part. And now Paul is saying there is a connection between you and the resurrection because the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead that we celebrate today and really should every day, that spirit lives in you. That's amazing to me because the resurrection is what all of Christianity hinges on. Without the resurrection, our our faith is meaningless. Without the resurrection, there's a, a dead savior, a dead Messiah, but what good is that? He can't do anything more for us if he's actually dead. It's the fact that he came back to life that means any of this is even possible. That means he could actually apply to us the the payment that he paid for, the sacrifice that he made. Paul talks about this in his letter to the church in Corinth. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. He says, and we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there was no resurrection from the dead. Let me unpack that a little bit because evidently there were people in Corinth who were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Once you die, finito, that's it. And Paul is saying, hey, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then what about Jesus? And Paul in another place says, hey, hundreds of people saw Jesus after he came back to life. And we saw on Good Friday, we read how Matthew reported that the bodies, many bodies from the tombs around Jerusalem were resurrected to life. And then after Jesus was resurrected, they came into Jerusalem and were able to show that, hey, there is a resurrection of the dead. This was a big debate back in the first century among, among Jewish people, among early Christians even. Like, what does the resurrection mean? And Paul is arguing here for, hey, there is a resurrection. And by the way, if there isn't, then all of this is meaningless. Jesus is our example of that. The fact that he came back to life, the fact that he conquered death means he has the power to conquer anything, including sin that leads to death. So Paul says in verse 16, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty of the sins. How important is the resurrection to our faith? It's everything. It's everything. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is why we can have hope. That's what it's all about. We can be free from sin. We don't have to be miserable. We don't have to have lives that are dominated by sin because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so my third point is that the hope is not in Jesus' death, but in his resurrection. We are thankful for the death of Jesus. We even call the death of Jesus good. That's why it's Good Friday. But we have hope because of the resurrection. How does that change our lives today? A couple of ways. The first way it changes our life is if we believe in Jesus, 
God's spirit lives inside of us. And Jesus' payment for sin gets applied to our account with God. And God doesn't look at us anymore as if we are the sinful, miserable beings we are with our lives dominated by sin. He looks at us as if we have the righteousness of Jesus. That's an amazing thing. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus kind of stands as our advocate before us. He can only do that because he rose from the dead. He stands as our advocate and says, this one's mine. And my righteousness gets applied to his account. That's what happens when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in him. After we do that, after we make that decision to trust and follow in Jesus, though, what often happens is we forget about those early truths. You know, I would, I would imagine that many of us here have trusted in Jesus, and many of us may have been believers for a very long time. And sometimes those early truths that were so exciting to us and invigorating to us early on in our Christian life, they just become sort of stale and old over time as we forget how meaningful it was and and what a difference Jesus makes in our life and how important the death and the resurrection of Jesus is. And we sort of go about our life and then once a year we remember, oh yeah, the resurrection, that was awesome. But the resurrection changes everything because our hope is not in Jesus' death, it's in the resurrection. Our hope is not in death. Our hope is in resurrection. What does that mean? Well, two things. Number one, when you trust in Jesus, God gives you new life. Paul talks about the the new life as being something that's already happened. But you also know that in the future, you will be raised to life in eternity with God. The knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that there is something way better God has for us now and something way better he has for us in eternity. That's real hope. Now, what should that do for us? means that our hope is not in getting that big promotion. Our hope is not in all that money we have saved up or invested. Our hope is not in what family can do for us. Our hope is not in what our friends can do for us. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in a new car. Our hope is not in getting into that school we really want to get into. That's not where our hope is. And we are so easily wrapped up in the things of this world and, and we get fixated on it thinking that's all that matters. And today we are reminded what matters more than anything else. We have eternity with God in front of us if we've trusted in Jesus. And that's what our hope is in. That means that all the little things that frustrate us, that annoy us, that get in our way, the sins that we continue to struggle with, that we keep running back to, that Paul says you need to get away from those, treat them as if they were nailed to the cross. All of those things are nothing compared to the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus. It's what our whole faith hinges on. So we need to live like it. We need to live like whatever happens in our life tomorrow pales in comparison to what Jesus did for us. We need to live like whatever that big disappointment is that hits us is nothing compared to the amazing thing that Jesus has in store for us. If we will live our lives that way, it's going to change everything. It's going to transform how we operate as followers of Jesus. Now, it's a possibility that somebody's here that is not a follower of Jesus. And maybe you kind of believed in him a little bit. You believe that he existed as a person. A lot of people believe that. Uh, most secular scholars, not Christians, will say, yeah, Jesus existed as a person. The question is, do you believe that he died and he rose again? That's really what it boils down to. Because if he didn't die and rise again, everybody agrees that he died. Secular scholars agree that he died. The question is, did he, did he rise again? Because if he did, that's pretty special. That's something I can't do. 
And because he did that, Paul's argument is because Jesus rose from the dead, that means he has the power to break the control of sin in your life. And so if you feel like, man, I just, I I can't figure this life out and I'm miserable. I've never tried giving my life to Jesus. I can't imagine a better day to do that than Easter Sunday. To say, Jesus, I want you to take my life. I want you to put your spirit inside of me. I want you to take away my sin. Give me your righteousness. I'm going to live for you. I want you to be my Lord, my master, the one who gets to control what I do. I want your control over me instead of the sin control of me because I'm done with that. The Bible uses the word repent, which means to turn away from the thing I was doing and turn towards something else. And so I'm turning away from that life dominated by sin and death. And I'm turning toward Jesus Christ and saying, I'm, I'm going to go all in with Jesus because I want him to transform my life. And only he can do it. You can do that today. You can do that as we close in prayer today. You can give your life to Jesus and say, God, I I want you to be my savior and to change me. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer if you wouldn't mind. Lord, it's amazing to remember what you did for us. And it's incredible that you decided to do it through this death on crucifixion and the agony that you went through just to demonstrate the depths of your love for us. This was not some easy thing. This was, this was not some simple uh, sort of uh, suicide or some, some death that, that wouldn't have any kind of lasting impact. This was an incredibly public, gruesome, horrifying death that you went through. And we remembered all of that on Friday. And then to think that, that three days later, you would come back to life and show yourself to hundreds of people so that there were many, many eyewitnesses to all of this. And then so many of those their accounts down so that we could have them today. We remember that Jesus said, you believe because you've seen me, Thomas, but blessed are those who believe in and haven't seen me. And that's us today, God. We believe in you. We believe in what you did for us. Even though we haven't seen with our eyes, we read and we understand your word. And we're so thankful for your spirit that lives in us and transforms our lives. Not that that makes us perfect by any means, but that means that you are alongside of us for this journey. And thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in in hearts and in minds right now. I pray for all of the people who are here in this room, all the people that are watched online, God, that, that you would help them to walk away today with a fresh sense of your resurrection and what it means to us and how it should change the way we live. I pray that this wouldn't be the, the one of 365 days that we actually think about the resurrection of Jesus, but that we would live like it tomorrow. Live like Jesus is resurrected. Live like that matters more than whatever happens in our day. Live with the the hope and the knowledge that we have a future in you that is so much better than everything we experience on this life, Lord. Help us to keep that the main thing in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.